This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Gosh Pods. Today marks the start of World Breastfeeding Awareness Week 2023. And so all this month on Gosh Pods, we're going to be focusing on topics relating to breastfeeding. Today's episode is the second of a two-part episode where I'm joined by Lindsay Hookaway, who's been talking to me about her work investigating the specific challenges of breastfeeding children in hospital. In today's episode, we're going to be looking in a bit more depth at these challenges and thinking about what we can do as healthcare professionals to support these families. Welcome back, Lindsay, and thanks for joining me on the podcast once again. Now, in part one of this episode, we talked about the benefits of breastfeeding unwell children in hospital, and then also ended by touching upon some of the challenges that can be faced by breastfeeding mothers. I was hoping to start this episode by looking at what the evidence shows us about breastfeeding children in hospital. Do we have data about the number of mothers who stop breastfeeding earlier than they would perhaps like to as a result of their child becoming unwell? The short answer is no. (laughs) We do not have any data on that at all. So we know that that from the last infant feeding survey, which was actually quite a long time ago now, back in 2010, we know that actually a lot of mothers who stopped breastfeeding before six to eight weeks would have liked to have continued had they been able to overcome the difficulties that they encountered. So we're talking about more than half of the mothers that stop before six to eight weeks would like to have continued. So bearing in mind the kind of age range that we see in pediatrics, it really depends how old that child is, that the younger an infant is when they're admitted to pediatrics, the more likely it is that they may still be breastfed. So looking at the initiation rates of breastfeeding in the UK, they obviously vary geographically, but on average, about 70% of mothers want to initiate breastfeeding. So if those littles are admitted on day four of life, there's a fairly high chance that they will still be being breastfed. There's only one study that looked at the impact of hospitalization on breastfeeding outcomes. And that was a study by Hale Bronner and colleagues in France. And they looked at a cohort of children all with RSV bronchiolitis. And they found that 50% of the little ones who were breastfed at the time of admission had modified breastfeeding by the end of their admission. And the average length of stay was just three days. So that's all it took, three days on the paediatric ward to either stop exclusively breastfeeding or stop breastfeeding completely. And when you look at the data in that one study, and I stress it, it doesn't represent paediatrics. It represents a small cohort of children with RSV in France. But nevertheless, the number one reason for modified or stopped breastfeeding in that group of children was medical advice. It wasn't, it was so difficult to breastfeed my child with bronchiolitis that I had to stop. It wasn't, oh, I just found it too much and, you know, my other kids at home needed me. Although those things did come up as well. The number one reason was because somebody on the ward had told me that it would be a good idea to stop breastfeeding or to give a bottle or to pump and measure or all of the other things that we do. Now, we could leave it there, but actually, interestingly, they repeated the study after a program of investment in 
the breastfeeding infrastructure on their local ward. And it wasn't complicated stuff. There was some better signage. There was a bit of training for staff and they invested in some more breast pumps for the ward. And after that, they re-ran the study and they found that only 20% of mothers at the end of their hospital admission had modified breastfeeding. So that tells us a fair amount about why breastfeeding is going down the pan the minute you walk onto the paediatric ward. It's probably not to do with insurmountable challenges for some patients. Again, you know, some of the parents that I'm supporting have very, very complex challenges that they're dealing with. And sometimes breastfeeding can be managed. Sometimes it has to be paused. Sometimes it is completely unsustainable. But it seems pretty clear that if we can get some training in, if we can increase the level of awareness, if we can provide simple basic infrastructure like breast pumps, we can definitely reduce some of that iatrogenic breastfeeding cessation that we saw in the Hale-Brunner study. So I, I wish I could tell you, yes, this percentage of breastfeeding parents in the UK who are admitted to the ward have this outcome, but I'm afraid we just don't have that data. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting. And yeah, that study is really, I mean, at first I was quite astonished and took it in quite, and you know, that's thought, you know, that's, that's awful. But then actually it, it could be taken as quite a positive story because actually it shows that just with some simple interventions can do something to reduce that number. Absolutely. I think so. I think so. And, you know, I, I've since done some research with healthcare professionals in the UK. And although what the research found was that any training increases breastfeeding skills and knowledge and attitudes, the more training you have, the better. And that's good on both levels because it means that we can achieve a, a minimum baseline that would at least get the skills up to where they need to be to manage the vast majority of problems. But then also for those little ones who do have more complicated problems, actually there, there's hope for those littles as well, because if we can increase the amount of training available and make it specific and nuanced enough for the pediatric population, perhaps we can help little ones with more complicated problems too. So yeah, I definitely think it's hopeful. It's not, it's not all doom and gloom. Yeah, absolutely. Now you touched upon this a little bit in the first episode. What are some of the common challenges or barriers faced by breastfeeding mothers of children in hospital? So, well, there, there are psychological barriers. So those are often around a sense of lack of support. There's often quite a, a sense that breastfeeding is a bit inconvenient, actually, to nursing and medical staff because we can't measure it. There isn't a gauge on the breast inconveniently enough. And so it's quite difficult to measure. And that is important. And, you know, as a clinician myself, I'm not about to dismiss the importance of keeping an eye on strict fluid balance. There are some children where we really do need to know about every little mill that goes in and out of them. And, and that's incontrovertible. However, we don't always need to know about every single little mill that goes in and out of a child's body. And sometimes we can put up barriers just because, and it's not always clinically appropriate to have the same blanket response to every single child. And I think for a lot of mothers, they were describing this sense that 
it's just a bit of a pain that I'm breastfeeding. I think most of the staff would really rather I either jack the breastfeeding in or express and give it to them so they can measure every little mill down the NG tube or bottle feed. There was a sense from a lot of parents that a lot of staff were sort of ambivalent. I interviewed some parents of children with really quite significant long-term illness. And, you know, one of them, I think this is almost a sort of direct quote actually, said the staff were kind of like, meh, breastfeed if you want, don't if you don't. We're not really that bothered. And for her, she had overcome a bilateral vocal cord palsy and, you know, fairly significant faltering growth, as well as a major cardiac defect and lots and lots of other problems. And eventually this little one had a tracheostomy and is long-term ventilated for multiple reasons. But she felt like, actually, do you know what? It would have just been really nice if someone had just said, oh my goodness, yeah, of course. Yeah, let's help you breastfeed. You know, you want to breastfeed. Let's, let's do this. You know, what do you need from us? She didn't even need anyone to fix it clinically. She didn't need specific information about how to persevere with breastfeeding. She just would have liked a little less ambivalence because it felt like something that she'd worked so hard to achieve was sort of being trivialized as unimportant when actually it was the most important thing to her beyond her child's management and, and recovery. So I think that those are the sort of psychological things that, that parents find really difficult. But then there are the practical things. It's really difficult physically to breastfeed sick little ones in pediatrics. We're often talking about older children, bigger children, wriggly, mobile children. It's really, really difficult to breastfeed a 16-month-old who's bored and sore and grumpy and hangry and all of the other things in the sorts of chairs that we have in hospital, period. But, you know, paediatrics doesn't have the kind of nursing chairs that you would see in the maternity unit, for example. Lots of these little ones only feed lying down. Um, I spoke to one mother of a child who was post-neurosurgery for a, a significant brain tumour and had to be flat on her back. And it was really difficult because they wouldn't facilitate bed sharing. And what she wanted to be able to do was just to be able to lie down next to her little one so that her child could have remained flat and fed. There were lots of barriers put up around that. And she wasn't even asking to bed share permanently. She was just asking for a bed so that she could feed her child and then her child could be placed back in a safe environment for monitoring and overnight observation and whatever. So there, there are lots of stories like that, lots of stories where actually just things were made unnecessarily difficult because of the lack of understanding of how breastfeeding works in an older population. There's often this sense of, oh, of course you're breastfeeding. That's totally understandable. Your baby's three weeks old. Yeah, obviously we'll, we'll make that happen, you know. But past the sort of arbitrary age, the raised eyebrows come and the sort of this question, oh, why are you breastfeeding? You know, you've got so much on your plate. Life's so difficult. Your child's so unwell. This is such an insignificant part of, you know, treating, I don't know, cancer or sepsis or whatever. Just cut yourself some slack. Just suck off the breastfeeding and everything will be easier. And that just, that was advice that just massively missed the mark for a lot of these mothers. I think one of the significant things that kept happening was this sense of enforced privacy. 
what often happened was a mother would be waiting for the ward round, for test results, for discharge news or whatever it was. Somebody would come into the room, see that she was breastfeeding and go, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. And just shut the door, close all the curtains and sometimes turn the lights off as well. Very, very bizarre behavior. And this happened, I sort of went, oh, that's weird. The first time somebody told me that. But after about 10th person told me that, I thought, gosh, that's a bit it is a thing. This is happening across 30 different hospitals in the UK. This is not an isolated little weird thing that's happening in one hospital. And it seems that this is particularly common in the older child population. So again, once in somebody's eyes, they're too old to be breastfed, that seems to be when some of this bizarre behavior starts creeping in and people start being weird about it which just makes the mothers feel kind of slightly ashamed or, you know, like something a, wrong. Yeah, like, like is, this, is this odd? Am I doing the right thing? And it, a lot of them sort of spoke about feeling a bit gaslit. Like, you know, am I making something out of nothing here? Would I be better off just letting them, you know, give my little one high calorie formula and just shutting up, you know, going on about breastfeeding? But then that didn't make them feel good either because... This was something that was really important to them and, and they could see the benefits of their child. So very confusing for a lot of these mothers to have those kind of experiences. Yeah, I can really appreciate that. And I mean, going back to right what you said at the beginning about fluid balance and that breastfeeding is an inconvenience. You know, I had my little one a couple of years ago off the back of COVID and I'd been working in COVID ITU for a year and, you know, looking after all my adult patients had strict fluid balance. And I found it so stressful that I had no way of knowing how much my little one was getting. I, you know, I was used to having an hourly fluid balance for all of my patients. And for this baby, I had no idea what his intake was. And it took a while, I think, for my mindset to kind of shift and realize that actually I knew he was okay. I didn't need to know what his fluid balance was. And I think maybe from what you're describing in some ways, that kind of a mindset change to accommodate breastfeeding is potentially needed by a lot of people working in healthcare. Yeah. I I mean, again, I I definitely don't want to trivialise the times when we absolutely need to know what their fluid balance is. You know, some of these little ones have such a lot of fluid going into them that we really do need to know. One parent I spoke to said that actually by the time they'd calculated all the IV fluids and everything else this little one needed there was 13 mils an hour spare for breast milk I mean it was that tight and so actually she did have to measure it because 13 mils is not a lot of fluid and if he'd just gone on the breast and fed to contentment he'd have needed furosemide so you know you do sometimes need to be very cautious about it but not always we don't always need to be that finicky about it yeah definitely what can we do as healthcare professionals to support breastfeeding for the families we look after? It's a great question. I think one of the first things is to ditch the ambivalence. I think, I think that would be really, really helpful to a lot of families. So that starts with a genuine curiosity about how someone is feeding their child. So when we ask that question, how are you feeding your little one? Let's not ask them if they're bottle feeding or breastfeeding or breastfeeding or bottle feeding, because that instantly puts one of those two feeding choices above the other. And that's not actually what we want either. We want people to feel like we're supporting their feeding choice. 
So if it transpires that a child is breastfeeding, it would be really good to start with, that's fantastic. Is there anything that we need to do to support you? Is there anything that you need? That's a really, really good first question because often parents do need something. They might need a breast pump or they, they might need to feel like they have overt permission to continue breastfeeding or they might need to know about modifications to breastfeeding. It would be really helpful to ask them if they're having any problems with breastfeeding at this time, either because they were already having problems or because of the nature of their child's condition. That would be really useful as well. I think another really useful thing to do would be to invest in some breast pumps. Of the 30 hospitals represented in my second study, only well, two maybe wards, um, and they were both PICUs, actually had a breast pump situated on the paediatric ward. Everybody else had to go, oh, oh I've got no idea. Oh, breast pump. Gosh, it was like they'd never heard of it before in their life. This sometimes happened in A&E and sometimes it happened on the ward. And at that point, you know, they would go, oh, who do we ring? Oh, my goodness. And they'd never heard of the infant feeding lead. They didn't know who else to ring. Sometimes they would ring the neonatal unit or the maternity unit and, and beg, borrow, steal a pump from the postnatal ward. But it never stayed on the pediatric ward very long or it was MIA or broken, it was in the equipment cupboard, or it had been condemned or, or whatever. So there's never a pump when you need one. And we all know that if you've got a six-week-old baby and they're not feeding very well, things are going to go downhill pretty quickly. So let's get some more breast pumps on paediatrics and let's put a massive sticker on them so that nobody steals them and reallocates them back to neonates. It would also be really helpful if we could just feed the resident parent. And my personal feeling on this is that we should feed whoever is staying with the child and not ask complicated questions about whether they are exclusively breastfeeding, partly breastfeeding, whether this is an 18-month-old. I interviewed several parents of older children, so sort of 18 months plus, who were doing nothing really but breastfeeding, either because they had severe sensory food aversion disorders and literally ate no solids at all, or because they had cancer in, in most of those cases. So actually, to start making complicated rules about, well, we can feed mothers who are breastfeeding a baby exclusively under the age of six months, starts just getting really silly. But equally, if we've got a father resident on the ward with a child, do you know what? They can't easily go and get food if they're also expected to care for a sick little one on the paediatric ward either. So my personal feeling is let's just stop asking people how they're feeding their little ones when it comes to feeding the resident parent. Let's just feed resident parents because it's really difficult. And then I think some flexibility around bed sharing. We know that longer term breastfeeding is strongly correlated with bed sharing. Bed sharing facilitates breastfeeding. Often older children will only effectively feed lying down, particularly when we're talking about going to sleep and that kind of thing. This is a really sticky one. And, you know, I'm perfectly well aware that I'm opening up a massive Pandora's box. Of course, it's not appropriate for all children on the paediatric ward to bed share. There, there will be really clinically sound reasons why some children absolutely should not be bed sharing. Totally get that. But quite often, there isn't. Again, it's, it's, it comes back to that strict fluid balance. We don't need to have the same ironclad rules for absolutely every scenario. And for some children, it may actually be safer 
to have them bed sharing because we know that if parents normally bed share because of their family or cultural preferences, if they are not facilitated to bed share in a, a large hospital single bed with solid bed rails, they're probably going to end up taking their little one into the parent pull-out bed. And I don't know what you have at Gosh actually, but you know, those are sometimes the pull-down beds from the wall, the wall beds. Sometimes they're the horrible archaic Z beds that kind of open out and squash your fingers. Lots of experience of that. Sometimes they're the sort of armchairs that convert. The bottom line is none of those are as safe as a full-size single hospital bed. I appreciate that none of these sleep situations are safe with a capital S, but there are definitely some riskier versions of sleep in that kind of context. So I think we need to be a little bit more flexible about that and sort of risk assess individually. Like, is there a real clinically sound reason why this child can't bed share? Or are we just being sort of computer says no about it and, and, and being open-minded about that? would really help. I could go yeah. on all day. There are loads of things that we could do, but that, that, that's a few things to start. Yeah. Um, are there any resources you would recommend for listeners who would like to find out more about breastfeeding in paediatric patients? So, you know, where can health professionals go to, to get more information and find out more about how they can support these, these mums and babies? Yeah, at the moment, there are limited resources the Baby Friendly Initiative have just launched their paediatric standards. They're not incredibly nuanced yet for paediatrics. I believe that's something they're working on. And I look forward to seeing some standards that actually represent the challenges that are unique to paediatrics. But watch that space because I think, I think that will come. And I think once we start getting, I hope, infant feeding teams for paediatrics established, that would be, you know, a dream, then I think we will start seeing the dissemination of paediatric specific breastfeeding training for clinicians. Until then, you can certainly come and request to join the Breastfeeding the Brave Facebook group that I set up a few years ago. I welcome clinicians and lactation advocates into that group as well. You're very, very welcome to do that. You can go to the website, breastfeedingthebrave.com. There are some resources and the research that I've done is on there as well. I'm, I'm pointing back to that really because it's the only research that has been done in this area, not because I'm trying to self-promote. I don't make any money if people read my articles. So there's some resources there. But yeah, apart from that, I think watch this space. Hopefully more is coming. Yeah, that's what I would say. What about, I suppose... If there's people listening who think, actually, we, we need to get more training and we need to be looking at these things in my hospital, who should they be contacting? Who should be their first point of call to kind of raise this as an issue that they think needs to be addressed in their yeah. workplace? It's a good question. I mean, you can certainly reach out within your own hospitals. There may be an infant feeding lead for the neonatal unit or the maternity unit. Both from my experience and also from my research, that sometimes misses the mark, however. So I, I get quite a lot of phone calls from maternity and neonatal infant feeding leads saying, oh my goodness, I've gone to see somebody as an outlier on the paediatric ward, but this is a nine-month-old with diabetes and I've got no idea. You know, I'm a midwife or I'm a neonatal nurse. I've 
you know, I'm normally seeing little ones who are less than a kilo. This isn't really kind of my remit. So sometimes that works. And other times, depending on the clinical experience and exposure and training that that infant feeding lead has had, although they may be brilliantly placed to provide general good practice guidelines about breastfeeding, they may not have the nuanced skill set to be able to manage pediatric specific scenarios. You're very welcome to go in touch with me. I'm really happy to speak to people on the phone. I've done that for many years, just informally. I, I frequently advocate for some of the, the parents in the Breastfeeding the Brave group, not in a kind of pulling rank way, but just in a, I hear you have this patient. What's difficult about it? Can I help you with anything? Is there anything that you need to know? Are there any resources I can point you to so that you can, you know, support them in a, in a way that is not stressful for you and is not stressful for them? So I'm really happy to do that. I'm also happy to provide training for teams as well. So you, you, can, you can reach out. Hopefully there'll be more people who understand that this is an issue pretty soon and, and we can start seeing you know, pediatric specific breastfeeding training being more widely available. But you're very welcome to reach out in the meantime. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic hope for the future. Finally, what are the three key messages that you would like listeners to remember from these two podcasts? Cool. So I think, first of all, that paediatrics and breastfeeding in paediatrics is very unique. And what works in the neonatal and maternity setting doesn't necessarily work in paediatrics. That's, I think, probably the, the most important thing. The second thing is that there is no kind of time or age at which breastfeeding does not provide enormous benefits in multiple different ways to breastfeeding dyads. So in terms of nutritionally, immunologically and psychologically and relationally. So it really is our job to protect and preserve breastfeeding. Sometimes it might require significant modification, but often parents are really, really pragmatic and stoical about that. They can handle things being really difficult or modified. What they can't handle is feeling like somebody has told them to stop breastfeeding or that breastfeeding is inconvenient or is not compatible with their child's management plan. Uh, it's more about, right, this is what your child needs. How can we make breastfeeding as good as it can be in this context? That's all they're asking for. And I think the third thing is if you don't know, reach out, reach out to somebody and ask. There are lots and lots of pediatric breastfeeding advocates around. I am definitely not the only person who cares about this. There are many, many people with dual skill sets in breastfeeding and pediatrics. And so keep asking, just ask somebody else, ask your colleagues, ask your seniors, ask your juniors, ask somebody else in the multidisciplinary team, ask the speech and language therapist. They're often brilliant, but just ask somebody rather than thinking, gosh, I've got no idea. Let's just try and fudge our way through this. I often say that actually the, the people who have most impressed me over many years of lots and lots of education have been the people who say, I haven't got a clue. I really don't know, but I'm going to try and find out. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's been really fascinating and really inspiring. And I hope we'll just make people think a little bit about how they approach the issue of, of breastfeeding amongst their patients. So thank you so much for talking to me today, Lindsay. You're so welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gosh Pods. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. 
You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.